Good morning again. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Jordan Valley Church. Um, please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8, and we're going to be reading uh, from verses uh, 20, 820 through verse 9, chapter 9, verse 7. 820 through 9, 7. This is God's word. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river and say to him, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. And the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials. Throughout Egypt, the land was ruined by, by the flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God here in the land. But Moses said, That would not be right. The sacrifices we offer the Lord, our God would be the, the sacrifices we offer the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, as he commands us. And Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the wilderness, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. Moses answered, as soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord, and tomorrow the flies will leave Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Only let Pharaoh be sure that he does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did what Moses asked. The flies left Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Not a fly remained. But this time, also, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field on your horses, donkeys, and camels, and on your cattle, sheep, and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. The Lord set a time and said, tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. And the next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh investigated and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died. Yet his heart was unyielding, and he would not let the people go. This is God's word. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we ask today that you would show us who you truly are in your word. And we ask that our hearts and our ears would be softened so that we don't um, make you out to be something that you're not. God, who you truly are is so much better than what we could make of you. So show, show us your love for your people through Christ by giving us understanding of your word, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What makes you different? Well, it, it turns out it, it probably depends on who you ask. Uh, a paper in the scientific journal Heredity answered that question in this way. 
Conditional plasticity appears to have evolved from repeated challenges from the environment so that the organism responds in a particular manner to the environment in which it finds itself. The resulting phenotypic variation can be triggered during development in a variety of ways. Each of the many types of plasticity demonstrates how a given genotype will express itself differently in different environmental conditions. So, if you are not uh, Lisa Barnes, then uh, maybe, uh, maybe there's a better definition. Uh, maybe if we had something more down-to-earth. Uh, this is uh, from the Backstreet Boys. You don't run with the crowd. You go your own way. You don't play after dark. You light up my day. Got your own kind of style that sets you apart. Baby, that's why you capture my heart. And there's no one I know that can compare. What makes you different? Oh, ah. Uh, makes you beautiful. What's there inside you shines through to me. Okay, so unfortunately that makes as much uh, sense to some of us as the scientific article does. Uh, but the bottom line is if you, ask, if you ask different people what makes them different from one another, you'd, you'd just get many different answers. Uh, one person might say that we don't all look the same. And that's what makes us different. Another person might, might go deeper and say, well, it's, it's what's on the inside that really makes us different from one another. One person might say, well, it's, it's how we treat one another. Uh, at one time, a, a friend of mine prided himself on being different from everyone around him. And his mother always liked to point out uh, that, in fact, he was very different because he was the only boy in school who consistently wore uh, gym shorts with his cowboy boots, uh, except in the wintertime when he would tuck his sweatpants into the cowboy boots. That's what made him different. Well, we're working our way through the book of Exodus, and, and what we see today when we look at the Israelite people is that they were different from all of the Egyptians around them. The Egyptians had for a long time also felt that the Israelites were different. Uh, they were shepherds from another land. They looked different. They talked different. They were long considered to be unclean. And yet all of these things that made the Egyptians think the Israelites were different are not the things that actually made them different, as we'll soon see. Over the last couple weeks, uh, we've been talking about the 10 plagues, and here's the, here's the basic flow of each of these plague passages. One, Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. Two, Moses announces that God will bring a plague. Three, the plague comes. Four, Pharaoh asks for help. Five, Pharaoh promises to let the people go. Six, the plague goes away. Seven, Pharaoh changes his mind and repeat the cycle. So while each plague is, is similar and it communicates the same thing, uh, they're also developing, moving forward to one final event. With each plague or two, a little bit more develops until that final plague that we're going to read about in chapter 12. And these two plagues that we read about today are no different than the last three, except for a couple reasons. At first, in these, you might notice, Pharaoh's magicians didn't even try to come along and copy the miracles. Uh, they'd, they'd previously tried to do the same things that Moses had done with uh, limited success, but by this time they had all but given up. And John, John pointed out last week how silly it was that they were actually trying to uh, replicate the calamity. Uh, so maybe they just decided it really wasn't worth trying that hard. But the second more important way that things have developed and what we'll be talking about today is that in these plagues, God places a special emphasis on the difference between his people and the Egyptians. God very clearly and explicitly makes a distinction between his people, who 
who are living in a land called Goshen, and the rest of Egypt living under Pharaoh. It's God that makes them different. And so often for us, the more we try to make ourselves different, unfortunately, the, the more we end up looking like everyone else around us. We don't realize that God's favor is what makes his people different. For you and me, the most important distinction in our lives is the favor that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. So let's get a little bit deeper into it. The passage begins with God speaking to Moses. And he says, uh, God says, get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river. And this is uh, similar to what God had already told Moses uh, previously in the first three plagues, when he turned the Nile to blood, when he brought frogs up out of the Nile, and when the uh, swarms of gnats came. And, and what would be the effect of Pharaoh seeing Moses coming down to the river once again? He must be thinking, oh, here we go again. No, not again. And just as he might fear, uh, Moses, commanded, Moses is commanded to warn him once again. And he says, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. And if you do not let my people go, I'll send swarms of flies. Now this might seem all that, it might not seem all that bad. It might not seem any different from the gnats. And today, if there were some plague of flies, we would probably find ways around it. Because most of our houses, on most of our houses, we can shut the doors. And we can shut the windows and keep the flies out. But see, in, in Egypt at this time, first of all, there's no central air conditioning. So you needed to get the air flowing. And so you had to have the windows open all the time. There was nothing covering windows. Uh, there were no screens. And so if the flies came about, they would probably fill the house before you had a chance to grab all of the blankets and rugs that you had and try to cover the windows up. So this could get pretty bad. But not only that, these were probably not normal flies. The Hebrew word most likely refers to huge swarms of various kinds of biting and non-biting insects. There's actually a, a different Hebrew word for house flies than what is used in this passage. So, so these flies are probably much worse and when they came around, they were, they were covering the ground, it says. So that it'd be difficult to walk around without crunching all the bugs underneath your feet. And as disgusting as the dead frogs were, dead bugs everywhere are even more difficult to clean up, right? Well, why is God doing this? Uh, he's making Pharaoh bend until he lets the people go, right? So that they can worship him. And this is one of those instances where he says, so that they may worship me, where the word worship is not as useful as we often think. Uh, we, we often use the word worship as if it just means go to church, uh, sing songs. Uh, but really, it's, just a, it's, it's a simpler word than that even, than just go to church. It's, it's a word that just means to serve or to work. And one of the reasons we ask, that's one of the reasons why we ask those questions at the, at the beginning of membership or baptisms about how you will serve at Jordan Valley Church because, because using your hands is, is part of your worship um, as much as using your mouth uh, to sing songs. Uh, so the people have spent their whole lives here serving Pharaoh, and now God's telling Pharaoh that they need to leave and serve him. It's, it's almost like this, like Pharaoh had found God's uh, wallet in the wilderness and, and picked it up and started to spend the money. And God comes along and, and sees that Pharaoh has his wallet and says, hey, that's, that's mine, give it back. It's not your wallet. It's handed over. Uh, we might think that after a while, of, of seeing these plagues too, Pharaoh would say, well, there's been three times now that Moses had said something and it's come true. And I know that Moses isn't speaking for himself, so I should probably just do what he says, right? It's a logical thing to do, but that's not what Pharaoh does. He, he never responds to the warning. He, he only responds to the plague. He can't admit he's wrong. Why? Because to admit he's wrong is to admit that he's not in control. And if you think you're divine, 
like Pharaoh did, it's, it's actually not a good look to admit that you're not in control. But more than just bringing the plague on Pharaoh and the Egyptians, God says, on that day I'll deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there. How incredible is it that there would be flies everywhere? Have you ever tried to contain flies? We, I tried to trap one in our bathroom last night, and I uh, chased it around the house, and I dodged things, and I, ch- I have the fly swatter, and I sneak up, and I pretend I'm a ninja, because that's the only way to catch flies. You can't contain flies, and yet there are no flies of these swarms in uh, Goshen. There's a supernatural division between the, the Egyptians and the Israelites. And I know it's not the case, but, but I, I just picture, like, this invisible bug zapper around Goshen, where the, the, the flies are just flying at it. Bzz, 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 bzz. They can't get there. Um, God says explicitly that he's uh, going to do this uh, so that Pharaoh will know also that he, Yahweh, is in the land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people, and the sign will occur tomorrow. You see, the, the plague is not meant just to bring pain on the Egyptians. But the sign, as every good sign does, points to something else. It points to the fact that God is in the land, and that his favor rests on his people. And if you're not with them, it means that you're against God. And if you're Pharaoh and the Egyptians in this scenario, it, it must have been really aggravating to hear. From the time the Israelites first came to Egypt, they'd been looked down on by the Egyptians. They were unclean. They were scruffy shepherds from the hill, hills. If there was anyone that should have been surrounded by flies, it was the Hebrews in Goshen. But God doesn't send the flies there. He disgraces this great and mighty kingdom when it was at the height of its power. He does exactly what he said he would do. He's dependable. The flies don't make any sort of distinction themselves. They they don't care how much money you have or how powerful you are or how much you think you're divine. And so these flies filled Pharaoh's house and the houses of all the officials. And it's hard to exaggerate just how bad it was with these flies around. The word ruined here is the same word that's used when, when uh, Moses talks about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19, when God destroyed those cities because of its great wickedness. That's, that's the same word that's used to describe the ruin that came upon Egypt. It was so bad that Pharaoh actually begins to crack. So he summons Moses and Aaron, and he says, go sacrifice to your God here in the land. Pharaoh's a great politician, isn't he? He's a negotiator. He thinks that this is one of those areas where one party makes a demand and the other party gives a little bit more in order to appease that first party and then you don't have to fully give in. And he must have thought he was being really generous when he said, I'll let you offer sacrifices in the land here. I'll meet you halfway. He wants to bargain with God. He's going to let the Hebrew offer their sacrifices, but they can't go away. He thinks, you can borrow my servants as long as I can get them back after you're done with them. But the sacrifice itself is not the real point of this, is it? The point of it is for God and his people uh, to leave service to Pharaoh in Egypt and serve him in the land that he'd promised to Abraham. So this seems like a pretty good concession to uh, Pharaoh. If for some reason the Hebrews have been prevented from worshiping and offering sacrifices up to this point, What's the real harm in allowing them to do it now? He thinks he's found a way to end the plagues without losing domination over the people. 
But there's also another distinction that arises in the verses. Moses answers Pharaoh by saying that the Israelites' uh, sacrifices would be detestable or an abomination to the Egyptians. The animals that would be sacrificed were sacred to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians would be so offended by the sacrifices and, and that these unclean Hebrews were making the sacrifices, it would just push the Egyptians over the top, Moses says, and they would stone the people. And so his reply to, to Pharaoh is, if, if you let us go into the wilderness to make a sacrifice, it's true, yeah, you're going to lose us. But if we stay here in the land and make the sacrifices, you're going to lose us anyway. You'll just kill us for yourselves. What Pharaoh doesn't understand is that the sacrifices themselves don't mean anything without the service. Sacrifices to one God while in service of another are actually meaningless. These people cannot serve two masters. Jesus would himself point that out much later. In a way, Moses is saying that even the, even the Egyptians recognize this. Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, was not trying to make a compromise between Pharaoh's gods and himself. He was putting the Egyptian gods to shame. Beyond how illogical the compromise is, Moses says that they have to make a three-day journey to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commands us. And, and the as he commands us is really at the heart of the issue. Pharaoh, Pharaoh is not the one who gets to decide how Israel worships. It's God that decides that. And Pharaoh cannot think that he controls something that he cannot control. He's not in charge. God created all things, including the land of Egypt, and he's the one who gets to decide how his people worship him. To allow the people to worship in the land of Egypt would be a deception for Pharaoh, making him think that he was sovereign and that he ruled over Israel and their God. So while there's a, uh, there's a clear and visible distinction that God makes with his people when the flies fall on Egypt and not on, or fall on Egypt and not on the Israelites in Goshen, God uses that distinction to draw out a deeper truth, that, that God doesn't cut deals, and he doesn't negotiate with false gods. He's not, God's actually not interested in making room for other gods. And for us, it's worth keeping in mind. We've got to think about this when it comes to worship. How often do we try to serve God while we maintain worship of other things that are not God? How often do we worship the creator and the created things? Uh, for some diagnostic questions, we could ask ourselves, is, is my intense focus on making a lot of money or being an influential person causing me to serve God differently than if I didn't have that focus? Maybe it isn't money. Maybe it's something else. Do I, do I care so much about my image or what other people think about me or do I care so much about what one specific other person thinks about me that it's clouded my judgment and drawn my heart away from Christ? Do I care so much about my own accomplishments? Or am I so eager to maintain control, so eager to be a God to myself, that I neglect to acknowledge the one who controls all things? You see, in some way, even Pharaoh begins to recognize that whatever gods he worshipped hold no sway over this God. He began to see it when his own magicians couldn't replicate the miracles, and now he sees that the plague cannot be taken away unless God does it. So he requests that Moses would pray for him. And unfortunately, this is not a request out of humility. 
It is just a prayer to be relieved of pain. It's pain that Pharaoh brought on himself. So let's move on a little bit. Moses warns Pharaoh not to change his mind, even though he kind of knows that he will, right? And so he prays to God on behalf of Pharaoh, and God does exactly what Moses asks, regardless of what Pharaoh might or might not do. But this time also, Pharaoh hardened his heart, it says, and would not let the people go. Not surprising. So Moses comes again and says, if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field. So God has a cause here that Pharaoh's trying to restrain. Pharaoh's trying to, it feels like Pharaoh's trying to hold back a flood almost in, in, in like a cartoonish way where the, the dam is about to break and Pharaoh is trying to duct tape it shut. And things are getting progressively worse. This is the first time in, the, in these passages about the, the plague that, that death itself is actually announced. The other plagues were severe, but this one is of a different nature even. And once again, God makes a distinction between his people and Pharaoh's so that no animals belonging to the Israelites will die. And the next day, the Lord did it. All the livestock, or uh, maybe a better translation is all, all sorts of livestock of the Egyptians died. Uh, later on in the passages, you see that the Egyptians do, do still have some livestock left. There's a, uh, there's a show on Animal Planet called Dr. Pole, and uh, it's about a veterinarian. He's Dutch, and he lives in central Michigan. So it's, it is a riveting show, but it's pretty exciting. Melanie likes to watch it because uh, the, the Dutch veterinarian reminds her of her grandfather, who was also very Dutch. And uh, there, was a, there, was a, there was a time uh, we were watching Dr. Pohl not too long ago, and uh, Dr. Pohl got a call from a farmer uh, who raises uh, cows. And he called Dr. Pohl and he said, uh, I put all the cows in the barn last night and everything was fine. They were all healthy, everything was good. And I went out there this morning and nine of them had dropped dead with no sign of attack, no sign of illness, nothing going on. And this is like, this is about as exciting as Dr. Pohl gets because all of a sudden it becomes like a mystery show. Huh? You know, he can always discover what's happening. So Dr. Pohl goes in and he sees all the cows dead and he says, oh, wow, he's very weird. And then uh, he looks at all the cows and he says, oh, all the cows that have died are touching the metal barriers in the barn. Said so there was a thunderstorm last night. Lightning struck, and every cow that was touching the metal in the barn dropped dead. Nine of them. Immediately. Now, as an electrician, I'm watching this, and I'm saying, see, that's why you need good lightning protection. <laughs> lightning, you know, it's got, it, the, the lightning protection takes the electricity, it disperses the current, and then sends it into the ground so that it doesn't hurt your cows. Uh, but that's not what happened here. When the lightning struck, the ones that were touching the metal died instantly. And it, it looks a lot like this is how God is dealing with the livestock in Egypt around his people even. He's continually bringing judgment down from heaven, and it strikes the Egyptians like lightning, but nothing touches his people. You'll often hear people joke about being struck down by God when they say something that they think is offensive, and they laugh about it. 
And their evidence that God doesn't exist is in fact that he does not strike them down. But the biblical reality is that God is righteously angry when his good law is broken. That's what we call sin. And all people everywhere in all times have broken his law and deserve his wrath. And if, if we're honest, even people who think that this concept is outdated and they scoff at the idea of God bringing his wrath on humanity, even they rejoice when they see their enemies defeated. There's no reason to think that the Israelites in Egypt were not deserving of the same judgment for sin. We need to be clear about that. God in this passage does draw, he doesn't draw any attention to the actions of the people in Goshen. We hardly hear about them at all. They're more or less absent in the story. And when they leave Egypt, we're going to see that they're actually not that much different from the Egyptians. But here, God's wrath does fall. Uh, here, God's wrath does not fall on his people. He withholds it from his people. And this was true of the previous plagues as well, and will be true of the plagues after this. And it, be, it becomes all the more clear as the stakes get much higher and higher. There is life and death involved. Striking at the livestock begins to strike at the very livelihood of the Egyptians. So all of a sudden, this difference between the Egyptians and God's people is becoming very, very clear. And for us, the same distinction, how God treats his people differently and withholds judgment from them, it should have a real impact on our lives should have a real impact on our behavior. But it isn't the distinction that's created by you. If you think that it's your actions that make you different from your neighbors, or even better than your neighbors, I can almost guarantee you that there is someone who lives close by, that lives a more upright life, that treats people with more respect, that donates more to charity, that goes on more mission trips, and that serves in the community more often. And yet we still think that the only way to be different is to do better than everyone else around us. But look, judgment is not withheld from the Israelites just because Pharaoh is bad and the Israelites are good. As it will become clear later on, judgment's withheld because there was no atoning for Pharaoh's sin. There was no cover under which Pharaoh could hide. There was nothing to stand between Pharaoh's hard heart and God's righteous judgment. As John pointed out last week, Israel had Moses on their side. He stood between them and God. And Moses among the Israelites is, is what we call a type of Christ. He's not Jesus, but he represents him. In that he's, a, he's a mediator for God's people, a go-between. But Pharaoh, unlike Moses, is just bringing all kinds of calamity on his own people. Now, we might think this is a little bit unfair, that, that all of the people in Egypt should suffer just because they have sort of a jerk for a leader. But this is actually the way things have always been. In fact, this concept is integral to the gospel. So Paul in Romans 5 points out, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so that death spread to everyone for everyone's sin. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. 
For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. So everyone under Pharaoh's reign suffers with him. But everyone under God, whose mouthpiece is Moses, is protected. And what unfolds throughout the rest of the Old Testament is that God makes his people different by giving someone to stand between our hard hearts and the judgment that we deserve. And that's Christ Jesus. He is our lightning rod when God's judgment strikes. The punishment that we justly deserve is cast onto Christ at the cross. And he bears the penalty for our sin. And that's the difference between God's people and everyone else. Let's pray together. Father, we simply ask that you would take the truth of your word and apply it to our hearts, and that we would rejoice to know that we are your people, not because of what we have done, but because of what you have done on our behalf, Lord. Uh, Give us faith by the strength of your Holy Spirit to believe it more and more every day, and to show it uh, to our neighbors, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.